Lyme disease have a lot of different symptoms. The bacteria attacks the body in so many different ways. Sometimes it attacks the brain, the heart, the joints, you name it. Today on Looking at Lyme, we're going to dive into functional medicine. We'll look at the body from a holistic perspective and meet a doctor who treats the whole body and the mind. Getting treated early for acute Lyme disease is critical. Some people find the attached ticks and others might get a bullseye rash, but that's not always the case. And without these telltale signs, people might not get diagnosed. The longer that you have the disease, the worse it gets and the harder it is to treat. That's when we need to go to the doctor. So let's do that. There are very few medical doctors with the expertise of Dr. Bruce Hoffman. He practices functional medicine, and we'll get him to tell us more about that. We reached him at his Calgary clinic. Good morning, Dr. Hoffman. Good morning to you. Uh, what's the first thing that you look for in a patient who potentially has Lyme disease? You know, patients present to a doctor's office with many symptoms and many complex uh, interlocking possible what we call in medicine differential diagnoses. So they they present with a whole host of symptoms, and um, it's it's the task of the of the um, doctor taking the history to try and work out what may or may not be Lyme disease. And sometimes patients come in with some Lyme tests and say they definitively have Lyme disease or they have positive biomarkers for Lyme disease on some of the tests they've done. But when a closer history is taken, that, not may, that, that may not be the case. So there's quite a lot to really sift through when you're trying to differentiate whether somebody has Lyme disease or not. The most important thing is the symptomatology. You want to take a very concise In my clinic, we use a diff, uh, two different questionnaires um, to try and determine whether or not Lyme may be a diagnosis. And we also then start to take a very specific history about whether they visited endemic areas, which is somewhat a moot point because Lyme disease is somewhat, you know, it's, it's prolific, it's everywhere. But if they've visited an endemic area, if they've been bitten by a tick, if they've had the rash, which is very uncommon, by the way. But we start to ask the history of exposure, history of tick bite, history of rashes, and then the symptom history, looking over the... Um, the variable symptoms that present with different, uh, different like Lyme disease and, uh, and also the co-infections that come along with Lyme disease. A lot of questions need to be asked, and you've got to sift through them and try and determine if Lyme disease is the primary presenting feature or are there any other coexisting disorders that interlock like mold exposure or heavy metal toxicity or food sensitivities, and there's many of them, that may interlock with the symptom presentation. So there's a lot to ask. Yeah, it sounds like getting that uh, patient history is just so critical. The history is everything. You know, you've got to take a good history. You can't just have a patient walk in and say, I've got Lyme disease, and they go, okay, let's treat you. No, no. You have to stop and really ask very specific questions. And it also sounds like you mentioned that most of your patients don't ever remember having a tick attached or getting a rash. You know, the majority don't. Um, I do have patients who have visited, like I've had a number of patients who went to uh, college in northeastern United States and they were out in the, the fields and in the forests and 
have a history of tick bite and rash exposure. But I would say that's probably 5% of my population, my patient population. It's very low. And I guess when we spend time in the outdoors, if we check for ticks and do a tick check and actually found one attached, we have something to at least document or same same with a rash. If you found one, it'd be a good idea to get a photo of that to share with your doctor. Absolutely. It would be lovely if we had that cookie cutter, you know, you know clear cut, walked in the woods, got a tick, didn't notice it for 24 hours, presented within three days with a high fever, headache. And then the rash, that so seldom occurs. So seldom. It's never that that clear, is it? (laughs) I never. I wish it was. I know. So how critical is it then for people to get diagnosed and treated early? Oh, if they've been exposed and uh, and there's the definite tick bite and um, the symptomatology of, you know, high fever, sore neck, chills, that occurs, you get them on antibiotic while waiting for lab data or getting the tick, if it's discovered, sent off to the lab for analysis. Definitely, I would put them on treatment right away. Mm-hmm. And there's different standards of treatment depending which school of thought you belong to. Some schools of thought say you just need like a, a very brief dose of doxycycline and others say at least four to six weeks of uh, treatment. It depends on your approach. You, do you have a preference? Uh, long, longer-term antibiotics, definitely not a short, shorter-term. Yeah, that was certainly my experience. I had about 10 days of antibiotics, and then yeah. all of my symptoms came back afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you like to, I like to usually, if patients have an acute exposure and they have a symptomatology, um, we do a, a baseline lab test, and then we repeat it uh, four to eight weeks later to see if there's any rise in titers. And we get send a tick off, but I usually cover them with antibiotics for at least six weeks. Oh, that's great to hear. So, and what is functional medicine? Well, functional medicine is this emergent um, system of approaching a patient from a very different point of view. Like my medical training is what we, and I don't mean to be um, derogatory, but it, it's, it's called the N squared, D squared method of diagnosis and treatment. May- name of drug. You know, that's how we learned in medical school. We just look at differential diagnosis. What what disease or symptom cluster does this person have and what drug can I pull out of my of my armamentarium to help them? That's a specific training, highly um, relevant, nothing wrong with it. But now we have this emerging cohort of patients who have this chronic multi-system, multi-symptom disease profiles with many interlocking um, issues, and that model doesn't work. And I tend to see, and many people who are outside of the so-called traditional healthcare system tend to see that cohort of patients. Functional medicine attempts to take an upstream history back, you know, what we call antecedents, mediators, and triggers. We go look upstream to see, first of all, we say, what's your symptom profile now? But when did you start to feel unwell? One of the most relevant questions I ask a patient is, when did you last feel well? And then you want to take it from there, backwards and forwards. So functional medicine looks backwards to the timeline, all the potential uh, triggers and inherited factors which may play a role, the triggers, what may have triggered the illness, and then what we call mediators, what may be keeping that, that symptom cluster alive. 
in conjunction with that, we look at not so much as pathology and disease lab tests, but we look at functional lab tests. How is the biochemistry and the metabolomics, how are they functioning? Are they optimized or are they deficient within a spectrum? Traditional medicine has a reference range of you know, negative or positive. Functional medicine optimizes function based on individual susceptibility and genetics. It's a very elegant form of practicing medicine with chemical principles and just old school sort of, you know, did you last feel well? What happened? What may have been playing a role? And no longer looking at single factors, looking at multiple causative factors as to what keeps this patient still symptomatic. And I can tell you from my experience that there is never one reason why a person's not feeling well. There's usually a whole myriad and host of issues from poor sleep, poor diet, early childhood trauma, dental issues, food and gut sensitivities. It's, it's complex and it's, it, it's a long list of what may be Absolutely. keeping that person unwell. Yeah. Absolutely. Why do the symptoms vary so much from one patient to the other? Um, you mean with Lyme disease? You mean with, with Lyme disease specifically? Yes, with Lyme disease specifically. Well, well, it depends on a whole host of factors. Uh, it depends on the individual immune response of the, of the person, the total toxic load, the infectious load, the, um, the uh, expression of the Lyme disease spirochete with or without co-infections, the uh, metabolic and nutritional strength of the individual, the immune competency, the presence of natural killer cell functions, whether they can suppress the immune response, the fact that Lyme disease goes from different forms, a cellular form to an intracellular form to a cystic form to a biofilm form, then it comes and goes depending on immune surveillance. There's a lot of reasons why somebody has waxing and waning and of symptoms and feels, you know, um, feels variations in their symptom profile. Is it possible for someone to have Lyme but not have any symptoms? Um, you, can pos- you can have positive lab testing for Lyme and be asymptomatic. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but you don't see those people because they feel good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No. Do symptoms flare and go dormant normally for some of your parent- patients? Uh, they do. They wax and wane depending on stresses and, and diet and travel. And uh, multiple factors affect the expression of symptomatology, treatment or not treatment. Some treatments exacerbate the uh, symptomatology quite dramatically. They get what they call the Jarish-Herxheimer reaction where you put in a treatment and the patient's symptoms just go through the roof. And um, so there's all these variations as to why people wax and wane and... and uh, uh, get, you know, get increased symptoms at times. But yeah, we certainly have, we certainly have uh, people with um, with uh, no symptoms um, who have positive lab tests as well. Dr. Hoffman, are you seeing a larger increase in the number of patients that you suspect to have Lyme disease and other co-infections? Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as you know, that the diagnosis of Lyme disease is highly controversial depending on what school of thought you belong to, whether you belong to the sort of infectious disease society, the infectious disease group of, of um, medicine, or whether you follow the ILADS criteria for, for the diagnosis and treatment. But this is two different schools of thought. Um, none, you know, even with that, um, there's been a tremendous 
uh, uptick in the diagnosis of Lyme and co-infections due to global warming, the migration of songbirds further north and the spread of ticks in, deeper into the uh, up, you know, north because of global warming. It's been estimated, one study showed that the songbird flight path from South America to North America brought up to 32 million tick species in the, in the yearly migration just northwards from South America. So there's a, there's a huge increase in the, in the diagnosis, um, for sure. Yeah, especially for anyone who's living along any kind of migratory bird path. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is a, there's a great Canadian researcher called John Scott who's shown that you know has published papers on this issue. Yes, hopefully we'll get him on a future podcast as well. I'd love to hear more about his research. Absolutely, yeah. So I was fortunate to go to the ILADS conference last year in Boston, and I learned about mm. mast cell activation. And I was just wondering yeah. if you could tell me a little bit about that disorder. Well, mast cell activation syndrome is a relatively new diagnosis. Um, it's been around for a while. Um, Dr. Afrin is one of the leaders in the diagnosis and treatment. Um, he's just published a paper with a co-author just recently, like last month, on the on the on the criteria for the diagnosis. And the the reason why that has been important is because previously at medical school, we learned about systemic mastocytosis, which is an increase in the number of mast cells that create disease processes. But mast cell activation syndrome is an increase in activity without an increase in number. And there are different criteria for the diagnosis. So, Mast cell activation syndrome is a very, very important uh, concept uh, to keep in mind when seeing patients with uh, chronic systemic illness because you'll see it a lot. I see it a lot. And what it is is the mast cells are white cells that act as vigilante cells to try and protect you from incoming stresses, whatever they may be, whether it's mental or chemical or environmental or infectious or food. They spew out at least a thousand, not two hundred as one thought, but a thousand mediators of inflammation, of which one is histamine. So everybody knows the histamine sort of allergy hive reaction, but there's many other mediators of inflammation. So people with mast cell activation syndrome have this heightened inflammatory response to ongoing day-to-day environmental exposures and present with a multitude of symptoms in multiple organ systems. And they travel from doctor to doctor. You know, they go to the allergist and the rheumatologist and to the neurologist, but nobody ties the systemic nature of this condition together. So it's important, again, to take a thorough history and elicit whether somebody may be presenting with mast cell activation syndrome. Now, interestingly, mold exposures and Lyme disease trigger mast cell activation, so you often get a cross-lapping of symptomatology. Well, what would be your best advice for someone who suspects that they might have Lyme disease? Well, it's a very tricky... That's a tricky one, because here's my experience. People often... You know, people want to believe in a one-diagnosis, one-treatment approach to when they present with complex illness. And that's really, it really doesn't do them any favors to adopt that attitude. Yes, you may have a classic exposure and symptom profile. No question about that. 
But when you've got chronic illness and chronic multi-system, multi-symptom exposures, and you go and do a Lyme test with a naturopath or an MD, they send it to the States, or even they send it to the Canadian, the Winnipeg group, and you come back with a positive test, it doesn't mean that the reason for your symptom profile is Lyme. Lyme may be the trigger, but you may have a whole host of underlying issues that are playing a role in your symptom profile. And one of the great tragedies that I see in my practice is people who come to see me, they've got a positive Lyme test, they've been treated for Lyme, and it's really not the key diagnosis. There are 70 other underlying factors that are far more relevant than that positive lab, lab test. So my, in response to your question is just be, be extremely um, discriminatory when you just jump to the diagnosis of Lyme disease as causing your symptoms. It may not be that. It may be there. You may have a positive test, but it doesn't mean that Lyme disease is at the root of symptoms. It may be that it is. But you can't just take a positive test and treat it as if that's it. And I see that 90%, 95% of the time. They just go get treated for Lyme, and, and it's not really Lyme that's causing their symptom profile. Now, sometimes it is. Of course it is. But you've got to discriminate. So it's that combination of diagnostic testing and... And uh, history, history, patient history. history, history. history. Yeah. yeah, history. history. If you're not taking a two-hour history with your patient, a timeline from you know conception to present, plus even intergenerational issues, because we know that you inherit epigenetically family trauma. That's well-studied and well-researched now. If you're not taking a thorough history and following the timeline and symptom presentation of that patient, at least a two-hour history, you can't really discriminate on a history basis whether this patient is suffering from one illness or 15 possible comorbid conditions. You have to take that history. Then you back it up with lab data, and the more lab data, the better, which unfortunately under the Canadian healthcare system, that, that, that sort of privilege and that sort of luxury of a two-hour interview with extensive lab data, it doesn't exist. You have to go outside the healthcare system to get that service, you know, which is a tragedy, but it's the truth. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hoffman. Thank you so much. My key takeaway from that conversation was just how important it is that a doctor gets a full patient history. I know that in my case, I had a lot of symptoms and it was really confusing to understand what was going on in my body. That wraps up another podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe in the outdoors.